Make your way, if you will, to Luke chapter 23. <clears throat> Luke chapter 23. One of the most riveting and thrilling experiences in this waking world is to witness the birth of a child. I will never forget the four occasions on which God permitted me to witness an infant pass the birth canal and take his or her first breath in this world. I have never been more alive as a human being than on those four occasions. But I must say that it is equally riveting to watch someone die. To watch someone slowly slip the bonds of earth and enter eternity. To watch as a person exhales for the last time. It is a heart-piercing and gripping experience. As fresh and real as my memory of the birth of our four children are those occasions on which God ordained that I watch as a soul passes into eternity. In a different sense, I have never been more alive. When you watch someone die, you are fully awake. You do not forget it. Watch a person die, and it reveals much about who that person truly was. And when a soul expires in front of witnesses, you also learn much about the witnesses. This was never more true than on the day that Jesus of Nazareth died. As we survey the account of his death, we enter hallowed ground. And on that hallowed ground, Luke chooses by God's grace to sketch for us the response of numerous witnesses to Jesus' death. Think about it. He could have written it differently. We know, of course, of the inspiration of the Spirit of God, but from a human standpoint, Luke is using his mind, and he is writing this account. He could have written it differently. It would be very possible for Luke to have written the account of Jesus' death and to have dealt largely, if not entirely, with the relationship between Jesus and the Father. Luke however, fills his account with the reactions of those who watched Jesus die. And in a subtle way, then, Luke invites us to stand and to watch as Jesus expires and to know that as we do, we will never be more alive. This is the most riveting, the most gripping death scene in human history. It is a scene we can never forget and by which our souls are tried. The first witness of Christ's death that Luke chooses to describe is a most unlikely individual who happens upon the procession to execution. Remember that having capitulated to the murderous will of the Jewish leaders, the Roman procurator, governor Pilate, condemned Jesus to death by crucifixion. At that point, the Roman soldiers flogged Jesus with a whip of several strands, each studded with pieces of bone and or lead. This whip was designed 
to rip the flesh clean off of the back. And it took with it a fair amount of muscle exposing the back rib cage of Jesus as he began to bleed profusely. Then the soldiers began to escort Jesus toward the place of execution. As they did so, they took that large cross beam and they put it across his bleeding back and he began to carry it to the place of execution. We come to verse 26 of Luke chapter 23. In verse 26, they led him away. As they did so, they seized Simon from Cyrene, who was on his way in from the country, and put the cross on him and made him carry it behind Jesus. Simon is from North Africa, present-day Libya. He apparently is staying on the outskirts of Jerusalem as a Passover pilgrim. And as he is entering into the city this Friday morning, he sees a large group of people making their way toward him. And perhaps he notices as he is approaching them that there are three criminals carrying the crossbeam. They will be executed this Friday morning. But as he passes, minding his own business, watching, of course, as the Romans encouraged, but as he passes, he is stunned when a soldier picks him out of this entire crowd and says, you carry this beam. Please understand in the language of the Greek text, as well as just by common sense, Simon is not excited about this. He is not a volunteer. He is pressed into service, drafted on the spot to carry this beam. And it is a shameful act. John tells us that Jesus started the journey from Pilate's hall carrying his own cross, but Jesus was apparently unable to complete the task, overcome certainly by extreme physical exhaustion. As we put ourselves into the scene, let's just remember and consider the physical trauma, the emotional, psychological trauma which Jesus has endured to this point. It was the day before. Thursday evening, Jesus walked a couple of miles to celebrate the Passover meal in Jerusalem. Think of the physical expenditure. Now, for Americans, that itself is a lot of expenditure. They were more fit for this, of course. But he walks two miles to the Passover meal. At this Passover meal, he gives himself to teaching It is an exhausting work. And he is teaching about matters that are life-transforming. An epoch is changing on the hinge of this meal. And Jesus seeks to teach his followers the significance of this meal. He teaches through that night as he journeys back a couple of miles to Gethsemane. And you know what happens there. There that night, we are in the middle of the night now. There has been no rest. And there in the middle of the night, he agonizes in prayer, realizing that the sins of the world will be heaped on his back and that he will bear the wrath of God. There in Gethsemane, Jesus is in such travail of soul that heavy drops of sweat pour from his body on that chilly night. Imagine the exhaustion of just that period of prayer. 
but we couple it to the period of teaching and we couple it to what follows. He is dragged back to Jerusalem again walking that night. He is brought in the dark to Annas and endures a trial before Annas. He is then taken to Caiaphas and endures another trial before Caiaphas. And the leaders of the nation surround him, accusing him and charging him. He must be thinking on his feet as he answers Caiaphas. And then after that is all over, just before dawn, he is given to soldiers who beat him bloody. And then, as the dawn comes, they haul him off to Pilate. He faces Pilate, the Roman governor of Judea, and is forced to give account before Pilate. He is taken from there, another walk, to Herod's palace, where he must hear the accusations of his enemies and receive the mockery of those soldiers. That event would exhaust a normal person in and of itself. But then he's taken back for a longer trial before Pilate. And then after that trial, and after Pilate caves in to the Jewish leaders and gives Jesus to these soldiers, they take that whip and they take the skin off his back. He has had no sleep. He has gone through intense pressure. And now they place on that bloodied back a crossbeam of wood. Apparently, Jesus is unable to carry the weight. There is some debate as to whether the cross was entire uh, as, as a cross, a, a, a small T shape or if it was the cross beam. But the practice was to carry the cross beam because to carry the whole cross would have perhaps been impossible for any human being. But certainly for Jesus, whatever the case was, he was unable to bear the weight. He is bearing the weight of God's wrath now and cannot physically bear the weight of this cross beam. This is no weak man. This is a man at the point of absolute exhaustion. In verse 27, we read then as Simon carries this crossbeam that a large number of people followed him, including women who mourned and wailed for him. These women are not necessarily Christ's disciples, as verse 49 will bear out, but historians tell us that devout women from Jerusalem customarily attended executions of young Israelite men. They would provide a form of drugs to ease the pain of the victim. And they would serve as semi-professional mourners. In every funeral, there were the mourners who wailed and make loud weeping, very unusual to our ears in this culture. But that was a, a proper thing to do, to wail and to mourn at a funeral. And these women would come to do that service for these unfortunate Jewish men who were being crucified. Now, many of them had asked for it. Many of them were vile criminals. But these women, in their kindness, provided this last rite of passage into death. As their life was snuffed out, 
these men would hear the wailing cries of these women and perhaps receive from them a drink that would deaden the excruciating pain. These women would never forget what Jesus said next. Jesus turned in verse 28 and said to them, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. They're not wrong to mourn for Jesus, but Jesus knows that their lives are in as much trouble as his own. Weep for yourselves, he says. Why? Verse 29, For the time will come when you will say, Blessed are the barren women and wombs that never bore, and the breasts that never nursed. The highest, noblest blessing of an Israeli woman was to bear children and nurse them to childhood. And Jesus says there is a day coming when childlessness will be a blessing. Verse 30, Then they will say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. You notice there a cross-reference to Hosea 10 and verse 8. Jesus taught, you remember back in chapter 21, that a time was coming when Jerusalem would be crushed by hostile forces. In that day, children would prove a liability to the survival of their fleeing parents. And in that day, the judgment of God will fall so severely on Jerusalem that the inhabitants will take up the lament of unfaithful Israel in Hosea chapter 10 and cry out for the mountains to cover them. They want to be delivered from the wrath of God. Any end is better. And facing the wrath of God, Jesus knows that 70 A.D. is coming. He knows that Jerusalem is going to be crushed, and he knows there is a possibility that these very women and their children will be facing times that will be tragic and horrifying. Weep for yourselves, daughters of Jerusalem, not for me. They had never seen a man going to a cross who thought about them. But Jesus does and finishes by saying in verse 31, For if men do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? Much ink has been spilled in trying to decipher the meaning of this enigmatic proverb, but... At any rate, somewhat generally speaking, I think we can conclude that he's saying if this can happen to the innocent Jesus, what will happen to Jerusalem when God's judgment falls on a wicked nation? That's the dry wood. Now the green wood is burning and the fire's hot. But there's a day coming when all of Jerusalem will be punished. And of course, a future day yet when the destruction of God will fall. Don't weep for me. Weep for yourselves. I don't believe these women ever forgot that statement from a man on the way to a cross. What amazing grace. Jesus pauses in his trauma to show concern for others, to warn them. And as a transition into the next section, Luke notes that Jesus was not the lone victim on this journey to crucifixion. Verse 32 says, Two others. Both criminals were also led out with him to be executed. At verse 33, the scene now shifts to that place of execution. They have made their way to the place of a skull. 
And now they are there, two other men with him. Verse 33, when they came to the place called the skull, there they crucified him along with the criminals, one on the right, the other on his left. By the way, they're referred to as thieves, and they were thieves, but we should not get the idea that these men were some, you know, stolen some eggs at the market this day. These were nasty guys. These were men probably guilty of insurrection, and thievery was part of that. There, we do not know all that they had committed, but they were guilty men. They were deserving of capital punishment in the system of that day. And you know, they're crucified, the three of them, and we've had some 2,000 years to get used to that idea. Now we wear crosses and they're on jewelry and things, but imagine going to a store and finding some jewelry displayed there in the case and finding there's a beautiful chain and at the bottom there is a woman with a, a, a spear through her abdomen writhing in pain. Would you buy that jewelry? Or there next to it is a pendant with a, a dog that, that's been nailed to a tree. It would be shocking to us. And it's an evidence of how used we have become, how accustomed we have become to the idea of crucifixion. I'm not saying that there's anything inherently wrong with jewelry that has a cross on it, but we have lost touch with the gravity of crucifixion. It was repulsive. It was bloody. It was a torturous act of insanity. Having reached the skull, apparently a rocky outcropping that resembled a skull bone, Jesus was laid on the ground with his arms stretched out along the cross beam. There, spikes were driven through his wrists, nailing him to that cross with his arms stretched out. You can imagine the agony of just that event. Then the cross being with Jesus' body dangling from it was raised in the air in the crook of two forked poles, then dropped into a slot at the top of the upright post or perhaps nailed to it, again exacerbating the pain in which he suffers. Once in place, Jesus' feet were then nailed to the upright post. The pain and the shock of it all are inconceivable. The body quivered and convulsed in agonized shock. Severed nerves screamed through his body. Muscles cramped with no means of relief. An intense thirst due in part to the great loss of blood overwhelmed him. And just the small things. Flies are after his bloodied face with no ability to get free of them. You put all that Jesus has suffered, all the mockery, all the torture, all of the horror, and what comes out of his mouth now is nothing less than divine. For he says, in the midst of all of this, verse 34, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. It is a terrible understatement to say we don't think like that. That is not natural to think about those who are abusing you and torturing you and to think about their standing before God. 
the natural thought would be to pray down the wrath of God upon them just to get a measure of justice. But Jesus says to these of these soldiers, Father, forgive them. With unprecedented compassion and grace, the man who handed Judas the piece of bread as a sign of friendship the night before is still at it. He extends grace He extends grace to those who are torturing him. Torturing him to death. His prayer is for the Roman soldiers who are referred to in both the preceding and following statements. So it's directly, I think, applicable to them. And the meaning, as we consider this, he asks the Father not to hold the sin of crucifying the Son of God against these soldiers. I think it's fairly specific. They cannot understand what they're actually doing. And Jesus intercedes for them. All they see, Father, is a man, a man that's been turned over to them. Don't hold this sin against them. Father, forgive them. I think we need to note here, because so much false teaching has come out of this idea Please understand that this is not a prayer that every sin that they had ever committed be expunged from their record, that all of the soldiers who crucified Jesus were saved on the spot. I think he's talking about this sin against him to alleviate the guilt in God's grace from their record. Jesus also, you will note, does not forgive his executioners. This is a point that many interpreters miss. Jesus does not from the cross say, Soldiers, I forgive you. I absolve you of your sin. We should think more of his approach to Judas. He holds out hope. He remains with open arms to them. But you'll notice that he does not forgive them. He asks God to forgive them. God forgives sinners who repent of their sin. So Jesus prays that God will enlighten these ignorant soldiers and lead them to repentance. It appears that Christ's prayer was answered in at least one soldier's case. It is a prayer to the Father to do a unique work and to bring these individuals to saving grace or at least to alleviate them of this sin of crucifying Him. And as Jesus prays for them, the soldiers continue to abuse Him. Verse 34, they divided up his clothes and cast lots. This was custom for Roman executioners. They received the clothes of the crucified, and it was one of the last indignities. The crucified hung essentially naked on the cross. In verse 35, we find others who are watching. And you notice the phrase indeed here, the people stood watching. It's a key phrase the people stood watching and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, the chosen one. They stood watching. Their hatred against Jesus is bitter. Seeing him writhe in agony, they mock him vehemently. He saved others is probably a reference to his healing of other people. He rescued other people from death. Why can't he rescue himself from death? If he has God's approval, why not come down from the cross? They are saying with great glee, the magician has been staked. 
He isn't coming down. The magic act is over. What they did not understand is that Passover lambs do not save themselves. They die to save you. But as they mock, Jesus suffers quietly. Hear me, he suffers quietly. Verse 36, the soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar. That is a a, a strong, kind of sour, nasty, tasting, cheap wine, mocking probably the fact that he says that he's a king. Here's your kind of wine, king. And they said, verse 37, if you are the king of the Jews, then save yourself, picking up the mockery of the others. There was a written notice above him which read, this is the king of the Jews. More fully, as recorded by John, this is Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. It was a cruel joke. And one of the soldiers would not, one that the soldiers would not leave alone. But it was not only the soldiers. Even those who hung on on crosses next to him ridiculed him. Verse 39, one of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. One of the horrifying things about crucifixion was that one had to lift his body to take each breath. Suffocation was the immediate danger of those who were crucified. In other words, you don't have a whole lot of breath to spare, and this criminal uses his speech to ridicule Jesus. He's dying. And he says, save yourself. Save us. The irony is that all the mockers of Jesus, all that they say is true. He did save others. He did work miracles. He was the Messiah. He was the King of the Jews. Another gospel indicates that both these mock Jesus, but time has passed. And through all of these accusations, all of this ridicule, and all of this mockery, there is something that has begun to change in the heart of one of these criminals who responds to what we have read here on the, from the mouth of the other criminal in verse 40. The other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence? We are punished justly for what we are getting, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. In other words, how can you ridicule this man before God when you are suffering the wrath of God just as he is? With labored breathing, writhing in pain himself, this man acknowledges two vital truths in verse 41. He says, we are punished justly. He sees himself as a sinner. And secondly, he sees Jesus as righteous. We deserve what we're getting. This man does not. Verse 42, then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. If we can get this, not in the sense of two individuals sitting at lunch together across the table, but to get this request as two individuals that are in extreme pain, 
whose lives are ebbing away. And the man reaches out to the only point of hope in this entire day and says to Jesus, will you remember me when you come in your kingdom? What does he mean? This mocker transformed to a humble penitent was a Jew. As a Jew, he knows the Old Testament. He knows Messiah will come and rule from the throne of David. And he apparently has come to believe that this man is that Messiah. And therefore, whether he will get down and be saved or whatever will happen, if this is Messiah, he will someday rule from David's throne. And he says very simply, Jesus, in interesting address. No one else calls Jesus, Jesus on this day that's recorded. He says, Jesus, Savior, will you remember me when you establish your rule as King Messiah? It is a simple plea for mercy to a Savior King. And it is such an insightful and dramatic request that many commentators say it was a, it's, a, it's fictional. It's a story. They made this up. No way could this guy go from one who's accusing Jesus to one who's asking him to save him. But is that not how most people think when a wicked sinner is converted? It just can't be. But it was. This man had a change in mind and heart. And he simply reached out to Jesus in that spot. Not only will Jesus remember him when he lays claim to his kingdom, Jesus goes further in verse 43 and says, I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise. This sinful man, this one who admits he deserves to die, verse 41, will this very day enter paradise with Jesus. Wherever paradise may be, Whatever paradise is like, Jesus would enter there later that afternoon and this man would follow him. They would leave the body behind and they would enter the presence of God that day. This man had watched Jesus die and it transformed him. The man was dying, but he had never been so alive. And others watched Jesus on this day. We have looked at the human witnesses and we have looked at what took place in their heart. But we must recognize that God the Father also watched. And that's brought out at verse 44. It was now about the sixth hour and darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour. High noon to 3 p.m. there is darkness over the land. It was not a solar eclipse as Passover is held at full moon. We're not told what caused the darkness, whether it was a Sirocco uh, storm, a sandstorm of sorts. We're not told if it was just heavy clouds. We're not told if, uh, what it was. But simply that it grew dark and that everyone knew there was significance to that. In fact, God was weighing in. It was a sign that the hot fathers heart was breaking. It was a dark day. Darkness reigned. It was a day of tragic death. The innocent son executed and the father watching for now. Sin's dark penalty was being lowered 
on the head of Jesus Christ. Darkness reigns as the sun stopped shining, verse 45, whatever that means. Scientifically speaking, we're not told. We don't need to know. Someday, perhaps, we can find out. But the effect was that the sun no longer gave its light on this day for three hours. And God continues to weigh in. The middle of verse 45, And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Although this massive curtain was one hand's breadth thick, somewhere in the range of the size of this wall behind me, and one hand's breadth thick, it split from top to bottom. And by the way, there were many Jewish priests who came out and reported it split from top to bottom. It would be difficult to yoke up enough oxen on both ends of that curtain to pull with all of their might to rip that curtain. I don't know if that would hardly be possible. You could perhaps destroy it by fire given time. For this curtain to rend from top to bottom was an act of divine intervention. God was speaking and he said, the way to God has been made clear. That veil shielded off the place of God in the temple where His presence had been. The glory cloud had long left the temple now by this point, but it was still a remembrance. It was still a place. If God was anywhere, physically speaking, it was behind this curtain over the Ark of the Covenant and over the spreading wings of those golden angels. There was a day when God did reside there in His presence. Though He is everywhere present, He objectified His presence in that place. That day is gone, but this place is that memorial. And there God split the curtain and said that the work that Jesus Christ was doing had now made the temple sacrifice obsolete. The final sacrifice had been made. The forgiveness of sin had been won. The Passover lamb had laid down his life for the redemption of his people who could now come before God on the basis of the Son's sacrifice. What a dramatic statement by the Father. And the cause of not a few priests coming to embrace Jesus as Messiah. Verse 46, Jesus then called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. We're told elsewhere that he cries out first to Telestai, if it was Greek or the Aramaic, it is finished. And then, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. He says it loudly that all may hear. And when he had said this, he breathed his last. It was not a whisper, but triumphant, victorious pronouncement for all who were watching to hear. Jesus here enters death, fully trusting his Father. And it's the only way to go. 
Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. He trusts the Father to the end. Among those watching was a centurion. He's a Roman soldier. He's in charge of the execution, giving guidance to, or, or having authority over at least a hundred men. This man in charge of the execution, Mark tells us, watched Jesus die. In fact, he says that when he heard his cry and saw how he died, he said, and we read, verse 47, Surely this was a righteous man. He praised God, it says. He brought glory to God. This pagan centurion, this was a righteous man. He saw how he died, and his only conclusion was that Jesus was innocent. He concluded what Pilate concluded. It was the same conclusion as Herod, really. And it was really the same conclusion as everyone else that was honest with himself that day. Jesus was innocent. Verse 48, others are described. When all the people who had gathered to witness this sight saw what took place, they beat their breasts and went away. It was, that's a sign of mourning in that culture. There's a heaviness of the chest that comes with great grief. And to hit it gives a little bit of relief. And it's a sign that we are truly grieving as they beat their chests. No one who watched it forgot. They were fully awake. They knew an innocent man had been crucified. Verse 49, but all those who knew him, including the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching these things. These are apparently not the people close by the cross, though there were some disciples that did end up there. But this is not the women probably who are wailing with him along from the way from Pilate's uh, place to the skull, the place of the skull. But these are his followers. These are women who have come with him on this long journey over many, many days from Galilee and through their provision, supplying his food and his needs and watching uh, to care for Jesus and provide any help that they can. They have come and they stand back at a distance and watch as their master dies. They cannot believe it. He's gone. They've killed him. No one, indeed, could watch Jesus die and go away unchanged. You cannot watch Jesus die and go away unchanged. We cannot as we watch from this distance of years. You cannot watch Jesus die and not be forever affected by how he died. The daughters of Jerusalem saw unique grace under pressure, concern for them and for their future from a man who was being consumed by death and tortured and ridiculed. There on the way, a word of grace, a word of warning, a word of compassion. The soldiers would never be the same, certainly not this centurion. 
those who abused him heard the prayer, we would assume they heard the prayer, Father, forgive them. That is not the kind of response these soldiers were used to receiving from crucifixion victims. Father, forgive them. We cannot help but be changed by watching how Jesus died. And I'd like us to turn just for a few moments to 1 Peter chapter 2 as we consider this. You'll grant me a few more moments together here as we consider the significance of watching Jesus' death. 1 Peter chapter 2 is a classic application of what results when you see how Jesus died. The inspiration, the model, the moral imperative. Peter writes to individuals who were indeed suffering persecution. And he says in verse 21 of 1 Peter 2, verse 21, To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in His steps. Your Master suffered, follow in His steps. You should expect suffering. You should be willing to suffer, follow in His steps. Notice verse 22, He committed no sin, and no deceit was found in His mouth. When they hurled their insults at Him, He did not retaliate when he suffered, he made no threats. When you see Jesus die, you see one who treats his accusers and his oppressors with grace. Nobody is ever going to make your life more miserable than did the people who killed Jesus. And he offered no threats. He never retaliated in kind. You've got to be changed by that. It's got to purify our tongues. He made no threats. But what did he do? Well, said his critics, and I've seen them in writing in early days and ancient times, what he did was he curled up like an offended little kitty cat and died a doormat of people's anger. That's not what he did. We don't have a man who's incapable of rebuking his enemies. Just think of his words to the Pharisees. Think of his words to his erring disciples. Jesus is capable of rebuking people. He's capable of standing up for the truth. He didn't just curl up and die. He offered no threats. He did not retaliate. He spoke no unjust or unkind word to his abusers. What did he do? Instead, verse 23b, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Faith is an active response. He took the abuse and he handed it to his father. 
He did not retaliate with his tongue, but instead he actively trusted God to take care of him. And Peter the Apostle, if, he, if you are a Christian, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ who knows Jesus by faith, you have been rescued from your sin, Peter is your apostle. Your authoritative apostle, equally with all of the other apostles, let me hasten to say, but your authoritative apostle says you follow Jesus on this one. When we watch how he suffered, we feel very small, don't we? No complaining. No pity party. No anger. No retaliation. No angry words. Active faith in the Father. May God change me to respond such a way to the small sufferings of my little life. May he change us all as a church. We cannot help but be changed when we watch how Jesus died. And let me add, secondly, that we cannot help but be changed when we consider why Jesus died. I've forgotten the name for a moment of the 19th century Christian leader and writer who made the very helpful observation, J.C. Ryle, in his book, Holiness. He said that where there is grace, there is conflict. Where there is grace, there is conflict. And where there is big grace, there's going to be big conflict. In all of His grace, Jesus took on the specter of death. And in all of His grace, He took on Satan that day on the hill of the skull. Big grace, big conflict. Why did He die? The rent veil of the temple tells the story. He died to clear access to the Father. The temple was structured to send the message to generation after generation. God is hard to approach. You've got to be holy, and you're not. So it's a very hard approach to God. God ripped the veil when Jesus died. Praise God. We can come into His presence with boldness and freedom we have the privilege to go home today and to pray to God without a priest. Because the priesthood of the old covenant ended on this day. It was over. The new covenant was inaugurated and Jesus split that veil with his death. There is now a new and permanent high priest who paid the penalty of sin forever and we as his kingdom of priests can come into the presence of the Father on the authority of the Son. We can go home today and pray in a way that no one could before Jesus died. 
Why did he die? The veil of the temple was rent to send the message. And the repentant thief is also an evidence of why Jesus died. He said, and I ask of you, can you say the same? I am a sinner. I have done nothing to merit salvation. Though he did not say that, that's certainly understood. This man is dying for his crimes. He doesn't come with this long list of good works in his pocket and share with Jesus all that he's done to be a pretty good man that's just misunderstood by all these Romans. He's got nothing. And he comes to Jesus with nothing And he says, I'll tell you this, Jesus, I deserve to die. And he says, secondly, that Jesus is not a sinner. And then he says, I need Jesus. I need you to remember me. It is a way of saying that he needed forgiveness of sin. He needed the mercy of God. I am a sinner, and I'm asking you, Messiah, to call me in and bring me home. He placed faith in one person, and that was Jesus Christ. If you have not done the same, what you need to do is not keep accumulating a list of great great righteous works. What you need to do is be like that penitent sinner and say, I have nothing to give, but Jesus Christ is the way of salvation. He saves those who come in faith. He does not save those who come with their list of great deeds. That thief was in heaven. And it means that on the surface of it, when when we deal just with the gravity of sin, it means that there is hope for everyone. On that basis, there is hope for everyone. The centurion, he saw Jesus as a righteous man who died for the unrighteous. Pastor Pratt read earlier from Isaiah chapter 53, and our time fails us to turn and to consider, Jesus was crushed for sinners. The iniquity of our sin was placed upon his head, says the prophet Isaiah. The New Testament spends itself explaining to us the significance of the death of Jesus Christ, but it's all there prophetically in Isaiah 53. And it's there in the statements of the apostles that he was made sin for us, that he bore the curse of the cross to redeem us from the curse of the cross. Salvation, let me hasten to say, is by grace alone. Jesus provided that salvation It is available. All the work that can be done for sinners has been done. What is left for us to do is to see it. And that we cannot do on our own. He must open your eyes to see that Jesus is indeed the sinless substitute for sinners. But if that thought is dawning in your eyes for the first time, perhaps God is calling you to saving light today. 
What you need to do is not to earn your salvation. What you need to do is in simple faith do what this thief did and reach out and embrace what Jesus did. He paid the penalty of sin. He provided access to the Father. And in simple faith we can embrace His complete and finished work. We can be saved like the thief. In fact, there's no other way to be saved. Simple faith in what Jesus did in your place is the way to salvation by the grace and goodness of God. Let's bow for prayer. We thank you, our Father for what you have done in the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for this time we've shared together, for the reminder of who Jesus is, how he died, and why he died. And may we remember that as we watch his death, we are more alive than we'll ever be in this life. May we realize as we watch his death that it was for the salvation of sinners. I pray for anyone who has not embraced that gospel truth and pray that you'll bring them today to simple faith by your mercy. I pray for us that know you as Savior. May we go out of here changed and always grateful for the work that you've done through Christ and always proclaiming and praising your name. May we, as we look at the cross of Jesus Christ, at his sacrificial death, take heart as we approach you in prayer and give thanks for the blessed truth that for the saved, our sins are forgiven. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.